Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Koyu Jean. Koyu is a Chinese economist currently teaching at the London School of Economics, and she just published a book called The New China Playbook. Koyu gave a TED Talk about a month ago, the same week that I did, and that's how I became aware of her. By the way, with any luck, my TED Talk should be coming out soon. So Koyu has an unorthodox stance on China, at least to a Western audience. It's now a bipartisan consensus that China is our main geopolitical rival, and that we ought to treat China as if not an outright enemy, then at least a major adversary. From trade wars, to theft of our intellectual property, to spy balloons, most American politicians would endorse a tough-on-China stance, at least in principle. Ke Eugene believes that this is the wrong approach. She thinks that America and the West have misunderstood and unfairly villainized China. As you'll hear in our conversation, I don't share her view, but I'm always interested to hear the arguments of the lone voice willing to buck a consensus. So we talk about China's economy and its strengths, its weaknesses. We talk about China's political system and why it differs from countries like South Korea and Japan. We talk about China's declining birth rate. We talk about the problem of brain drain from China. We talk about China's current human rights record, including its detention of around a million Uyghur Muslims and other minorities in Xinjiang. We talk about China's aspirations to annex Taiwan and much more. So without further ado, Ke Yujin. Okay, Ke Yujin. So great to have you on the show. So good to be here. We, uh, we were just chatting. We met at TED recently and we both gave... A TED Talk, I think, uh, you know, within a day of each other. And, and so congrats on that. And uh, it's good to actually get to talk to you in person. And, and so before we talk about like the subject of your TED Talk and your new book and your ideas in general, just give my listeners a sense of like who you are. What's your story? How did you, how did you come to have, have this point of view on China and feel strongly about having what is what may to my audience and to a broader American audience be a contrarian viewpoint on how we should view China. Sure, Coleman. Thanks for having me. Um, when I was 14, I came to the U.S. as an exchange student for the first time for a school called Horace Mann, which I'm sure you know of. And back then in 1997, whenever anybody knew I was coming from China, all they could think of is, you know, Tiananmen Square, Tibet and human rights. But in China, we were so busy with, you know, bidding for the Olympics, um, skyscrapers going up and down and, you know, 400 million in people over the course of 10 years moving from uh, agriculture into industries. And we were busy creating this transformative landscape that it seemed like the West had totally ignored. And so, uh, you know, a few years later, I was um, in university here and then my friends started to learn Chinese and many of them actually want to go to China uh, to work. So I, I've personally lived through this enormous, I mean, amazing, profound transformation of China and China's place in the world. So I'd like to tell a different side of the story of China, in particular China's economy, because we get so lost in the midst of the headline news and the Western media portrayal, um, interest groups uh, uh, with their own motives of, um, you know, portraying China in a certain way. Um, but let's go beyond the headlines. Let's see China for what it is. Warts and all, of course, but it has fostered a uniquely powerful model that has uh, allowed China to grow, lift hundreds of million people out of poverty, and now innovate. And there's something to be learned, just like China has many things to learn from the West as well. So one of the major narratives in the West towards China in the past 50 years has been, you know, starting in the late 70s, China's economy begins to liberalize. And that accelerates throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s. And a lot of Western commentators look at this and they say, well, isn't this amazing? Millions of people are getting lifted out of poverty. And naturally, what will follow is that China will become a Western style democracy or a, a democracy in the style of, of Japan or South Korea. 
And that's how a lot of people felt at the time. And that has proven not to be true. What do you make of that false prediction on the part of Western commentators? This is where Western assumptions about China is often wrong, just as you know Chinese assumptions about the West might also be wrong, because we, 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 we need to take into account that history and culture have a very important role in shaping the parameters of the uh, economy and society. You know, after joining the WTO in 2001, the Chinese are still Chinese. Surprising. Not really. Um, we often see this form of superficial globalization where, uh, yes, the Chinese and the Koreans and the Japanese Japanese and many, you know, a new generation of around the world love MBA and Hollywood. Um, but that's superficial globalization convergence. Deeply at the at the core, the Chinese are still wedded to their cultural roots, as many other countries have shown the same. But, you know, still joining the WTO has made China change so much. They changed thousands of laws so they can adapt to the new system, the global system. The state-owned enterprises reformed in, in, in profound ways. And there was a lot of economic convergence, but we have to come to grips with the fact that the norm of the world is that there's a coexistence of, and hopefully peaceful coexistence of many different kind of cultures, religions, political systems, and today economic models. When you say, surprise, China is still China, that makes sense to me on one level, because I think one thing we fail to appreciate as, as Westerners, and this is not a unique knock on us, I think this is just how people all over the world tend to view themselves as central, is that China is, I think, probably the oldest civilization in the world, the, certainly the oldest continuous people that have a, a written continuous culture that can be traced back some 4,000 years. And there is debate about that, but I don't think there's debate about that basic fact. And that's a very powerful story, I think. And it, I think that's something, it's very easy for a Western audience, an American audience, a European audience to fail to appreciate the power of, of that and that Western style democracy is not by any means the default. At the same time, I do feel that the classical liberal democracy system with civil liberties and free speech and rule of law and elections, I think that is the better system. I think it's a, it's a more just system. And when I see that other Asian, uh, uh, other East Asian societies with long history, not quite as long as China, say Japan, have embraced certain elements of that, one thinks, why couldn't China? Does, does, would that make less, would that make China less Chinese? Is it a trade-off between being Chinese and having a, a more, uh, a human rights style and governance style that was more akin to a South Korea and Japan, do you see those as intention? Well, this is a very profound question, Coleman, and something that the Chinese will often ask themselves as well in different forms. You know, history is so important. If we look at uh, just the Chinese government today, the bureaucracy and the implicit contract between the government and the people, it's actually, it goes back to 2,000 years where the people um, have certain kinds of deference and cooperation but not blind submission with the government. And the government in return takes care of the people and offers basic things like security and um, social, social infrastructure and now growth. That hasn't changed. And even though there's no, no democracy a la West uh, in China, um, we also have to ask about things like accountability, responsibility, which I would argue the Chinese government has um, demonstrated a huge amount of um, responsibility and accountability to its people, um, and that that too is changing. I, I, I look at the U.S. society, and you know, forgive me for being blunt, but. Um, there's a lot of focus on, which is a good thing, on a, a small group of people. But I'd say that China has been very, the Chinese government has also been very effective on taking care of the vast majority of people. If we just think about, you know. What do you mean small group of people? No, no, just, um, uh, well. Um, You're talking about Uyghurs or? No, uh, no, what? you mean China? Yeah, when you, you say there's a focus on which small group of people? In China, I'm opposite, I'm, off, uh, I'm saying the opposite, that um, the minority, some minority interests might be forsaken. But the vast majority of people, if we just, just think about what the average Chinese people, you know, 600, 600 million people still with 2,000 RMB or $300 less of monthly income, 
there's kids can go to school. They have good physical uh, infrastructure, um, health care, uh, the pension fund, which was basically pension, which was basically available to nobody in the rural area, is now vastly spread. So I'm just saying that they have provided for the vast majority, if not for the entire population. But if you look at, if you look at, you know, even without being a democracy, if you look at the new generation, what they care about is much more converging with what the Western uh, society cares about, um, free speech or especially diversity, the kind of openness they display, the tolerance of diversity, uh, you know, kind of very different types of religions or uh, just generally openness, much more profound than um, the previous generation, I'd argue, is a step forward. But you see, you need to take China step by step. It was, we had a a century of humiliation, the century of humiliation from being exploited, as the Chinese would argue, by foreign powers, you know, being sold opium, etc., and substantially have weakened China with no military power whatsoever, and now with a slightly more mature economy, and then the people becoming more interested in things beyond material sufficiency, like diversity, like protecting minority rights. These are all progress. But we can't leap ahead before these people have the basic uh, needs met. So so just accountability, competitive mechanisms, checks and balances, responsibility is there in China. And, argue, and I argue is sometimes even more powerful than Western democracies. But I think because we don't read beyond the headlines, and this is what I try to do in my book, is to explain the very nuanced mechanisms that keep these people in check, where the Chinese people also have has surveillance on the government, lots and lots of examples and evidence where social media, they're keeping local government chiefs in check. We, we want to try to understand China and really see it as an evolving organism. I'm skeptical of that. We're gonna, I'll, I'll table that for now. But you, you said a phrase that I think is very important to, for Westerners to understand about China and the national psyche, which is a century of humiliation. That is a phrase that most American listeners don't know, yet I have become interested in this concept in the past and I understand how important it is to understand. So can you describe when you say century of humiliation, what are you talking about and how how does China think about that? How does that manifest, especially in Chinese attitudes today? Yes, I, I think it is an important historical episode that is still in the back of the minds of the Chinese, which is that eight uh, colonial powers had simultaneously uh, come into China, um, uh, especially in the 19th century. Um, China was never a formal uh, formal colony of uh, any of these powers, but, um, uh, but including the Japanese, the Dutch, uh, the British, etc. You know, Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the war reparation that China gave to Britain for having invaded China, having won in the invasion of China um, after China decided to not take its opium. And so that that is very much fresh in the, you know, people's in the children's history books, etc. And that is a historical fact. And the century of humiliation is basically that China used to be such a great power at the center of culture and history and uh, the economy, accounting to about 30 percent of the world's GDP at some point, uh, and then totally having missed out the Industrial Revolution and have become the, the weak link uh, in Asia and having, you know, been kind of um, the whole of China, the northern parts belong to Japan and Great Britain, etc., and then having a civil war internally. So that century of humiliation is basically, you know, China couldn't do anything to fight back the foreign powers, the Qing dynasty, the last, um, the last dynasty in China's history um, was very weak, very corrupt. And so, um, that century of humiliation also meant that afterwards, even though China was poor, there was a national mobilization around getting China to be stronger. And it's relevant today because although people don't want to cite that as kind of being um, something to remember in the midst of the heated debate between U.S. and China, etc., it does also explain in part why China wants to build up its military base, why China as a big nation has rising aspirations to kind of, uh, not erase, but kind of, uh, kind of change history. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I remember reading a book called Never Forget the Century of Humiliation by a Chinese scholar where, uh, and I couldn't believe that I had never heard this phrase before because of how momentous it is. And the only thing I can compare it to for an American audience, especially for the audience of this podcast, is like the concept of the legacy of slavery in America. That's a phrase that is repeated often and has a lot of 
emotional weight, especially for black Americans, but also for Americans of every race. And it's something the emotional and psychological weight of which might be hard to describe to a foreigner. Like it, it, it requires some imagination to realize how important certain aspects of the history feel to people and how that can how that can inform people's desires today. Right. So I think I think that's a, that's a really important piece for people to realize. So so let's let's though dig into the claims you made earlier about that there is accountability that the Chinese people have accountability to uh, local officials. Right. So this is. That's the, tell me more about that. I think one of the most successful, albeit quite controversial, campaigns, as at least um, as described by the Western media, is China's anti-corruption campaign um, since, let's say, 2013. Um, uh, today, China is a lot less corrupt than what it was in the past few decades. Um, one can argue that corruption greased the wheels, and it was important for China's economic growth, etc. I'm not going to go into that, and that there might be some truth in that. But the sheer amount of waste of public money uh, on uh, public entertainment, the kind of uh, networks uh, with businessmen, uh, you know, was it was a corrosive atmosphere, even though it happened during China's period of growth. Um, what is really interesting is that social media has evolved into a two-way monitoring system. The government monitoring its people and the people monitoring the government, especially the local uh, government. And so there are some really interesting stories um, where, you know, people will take photos like paparazzi, go chase the local officials and look at what their watches are. And, you know, who are they? Which mistresses have they come out of the car with? I mean, they're just a vibrant marketplace and debate about these issues. At the same time, I mean, we do that in America, too. But we also get to vote them out of power. Yes, but but you don't get to vote them out of power. You don't get to vote the party out of power. But these people are out of office. And um, there have been roughly a million to two million officials all in China from top to bottom, from the lowest levels to very high uh, ranking senior officials that have been charged uh, based on corruptions, either taken out of office or even going to jail. I think it's important to have these kind of two-way monitoring and does change local government behavior. There's also a, um, a vibrant um, internet space where you can complain about the local officials. Just remember that it's important for the central government to keep an eye on the local officials. They're very powerful. Um, they actually really, they are the main determinant of the economy, the social stability in their regions. And they also have an incentive to keep an eye on what's going on. So I just want to say that there's a genuine intention, again, not perfect, to clean up the system to the extent that it can. I think there are fundamental flaws with the system, but to clean up to the extent it has shown progress. And the people has a vibrant place where they would say they want to protest and they organize coordinated protests. This is not taboo. They criticize local government officials. Now, admittedly, to be very honest, there's very there's no criticism of the very senior officials in the Chinese government. But to be honest, the people closest to the on the ground are the local chiefs. There are, you know, all kinds of political debates on the social media more than we think. Again, of course, acknowledging that some really highly sensitive political uh, subjects are censored. But as international studies and academic studies will show, it is a very vibrant civil discourse on the on the platform. And by the way, mechanically, you can't actually shut off and censor uh, conversations. It's technically challenging. You could do it maybe three hours after it was posted, but by then something explosive have already happened. These all seem to me to be caveats to the overarching truth that China is not a free society in the sense that America is a free society, right? Like I can, I can say on this podcast, I can say, fuck Joe Biden. I can say, fuck Donald Trump. If I felt that way and I would sleep easy tonight, my whole family would sleep easy tonight. And that's just not true in China. Right? And then and that's what America, Americans and Westerners think of as freedom and anything less than that Oh, you know, I get to take pictures of the corrupt whatever uh, officials and I get to organize a local protest that doesn't challenge the party. We all view that as asterisks on an unfree society. And again, this is this comes this may come down to like just 
a really big difference between different parts of the world. We have with totally different histories and totally different cultures and self images. But that seems to me a profound gap. Yeah, I, and I agree with you, Coleman. I mean, U.S. is a much more open society and a free society than China is. There's no doubt about that. But let me come back from a Chinese perspective and look at the U.S. And this is what they would say. But what about you know, police, black incarceration. What about random shootings and killing kids? Um, what about um, the fact that, you know, there are shortages of teachers um, or potholes on the, on the streets? Is the American government really taking care of its people to the extent that it can? It really should. The Chinese would also ask that. And again, maybe there's no trade-off. I think in an ideal utopian world, there is no trade-off. You can have both freedom, civil freedom, and the fact that the government takes care of its people. Because frankly, lots of these things have come come down to the state. They don't come down to individuals who can change. And the U.S. and China would say the U.S., well, you know, capital, capital is about is above politics and above the people. So but wrestle this, you know, grapple this for the Chinese audience, too. When they look at America, they don't see that that's what they want. And maybe you're right. It comes down to preferences that if we look at the World Value Survey in 2020, this is a recent one. This is the international survey done around um, countries all around the world. The Chinese people, 95 percent of the people would say they prefer prefer security over freedom. And 37% of Americans would prefer that. That's a big gap. Now, of course, there are all kinds of different, you know, problems with measurement and all that, but this is a pretty um, a good survey. But there's the, the big gap is significant. So if there's really a trade-off, and I'm not sure there is, so I, I think that we can do both. But if there's really a trade-off, Chinese people would say, I want my kids to go to, to have good education, that they will be optimistic about future, that I will have a pension for my retirement, and that I would have fair opportunities more than they can say, am I going to be able to say anything I want? Um, again, China is moving towards a different direction and maybe one day will be demanding more of what you said. Um, but th they look at Americans and they're not inspired. So here's what I would say to a Chinese audience who found that line of thinking compelling. I think there's no comparison between the, in the first place, the human rights abuses in China and say the treatment of black Americans in America. I think that, I think it's totally disanalogous. I think, um, you know, you have in America, we have like about 100 unarmed people killed by the cops every year, roughly. And and maybe 40 of them are, are often less, maybe 20 or so have been black. And and usually in every year for the past 10 years, more people have been white that have been killed unarmed by the cops. And The Washington Post keeps a very good database of this. And they're often in situations, some of them are just straight up murders, and some, many of them are genuinely difficult situations where you, th you thought someone was pulling out a gun and, and so forth. You know, the notion that our incarceration system is anything like China's, right? Like China can put a million Uyghur Muslims in, in camps, in internment camps, and America, as many people as, as we have in prison, you do have to commit an actual crime to get into prison. I'm not saying there are zero cases where people are innocent. We know that there are. But in America, we have a lot of crime. China doesn't have a lot of crime. Um, America is, is a country more like Brazil in that sense. Like We have a ton of crime, but we also have a state strong enough to catch criminals and put them behind bars. Europe has a strong state, but they don't have any crime. So America is in a unique situation where you have lots of crime and a, and a state strong enough to punish it. And that's why we have two, mil two million people behind bars. But they also have human rights protections and civil liberties that are, uh, would be unthinkable in China. So I, I, th I think there's no comparison on that front. On the, uh, the, the point about guns, I agree, uh, our gun culture is crazy and uh, a big problem. But that, you know, that is not, that's really an American problem. That's not a problem with democracy. You know, Europe doesn't have a gun problem. Uh, Japan doesn't have a gun problem. And, and they're a democracy. So to me, I, I see that this, I hope, I certainly hope this is a false trade-off between if we had freedom, then we'd be like America and there'd be school shootings every other week. I somehow, I think that Maybe America may not even be the best comparison case. Like Japan and South Korea might be a better comparison case. Not that those yeah, societies have no big. problem. 
Yeah. China's huge. That's and, true. And complex like the U.S. Yes. I mean, I, I, Koma, I completely agree with you. And I just want to say a couple of things. One is we got to see China as changing. First of all, just in the last 20 years, economics dominated everything because people were so equally poor. Um, as you heard on my TED talk, you know, in Beijing, we, we were living off of rationed food and had blackouts. And that was already a pretty good, good deal. To, to come from there to here is something that the people are grateful to, the, at least if we don't want to talk about the party, to the stability and peace um, and the good policies that were chosen. That's on the back of the mind. And then now we need to see China in progress. And I think the challenge is coming. The coming, the chi- coming challenge is that China is becoming an increasingly complex society, more than before, because in the last 30 years, people were all rallied about around one goal, which is how to get richer. You know, it was all about go- uh, growth. And the whole government was about growth. But now you have a society that's diverse. Uh, you have a society that is complex because they now the civil demands for lots of things are are more not even just even before let's say political freedom. There's things like food security, like you know, like um, a softer metric of development, the standards of living, environment, and then we can debate also about what the Chinese would want for their civil civil liberties. And I'm sure it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. It's just it comes in phases. But we want to see China as also. Uh, an evolving mechanism, the Chinese government organ. You know, I always say that the party doesn't change, but policies can change very, very flexibly and they can adapt. You can throw them out. There can be new rules, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but they're always constantly adapting and it's a dynamic thing. So we want to watch where China goes. But I still want to come back to the point that deep down, because of the cultural roots, the historical roots, people might just have different priorities. Not that those things you mentioned aren't important. They are, but they will prioritize. So let's talk a little bit more about the economics. We talked before that I had this guy, Michael Beckley, on the podcast maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And listeners may want to go back and check out that episode. He takes a much more skeptical uh, of China's economic prospects uh, take on the issue. He feels, he would argue that a lot of China's growth numbers are manipulated or fake, or they're real, but only in a trivial sense because China will put all this money into mega infrastructure projects that he calls is like bridges to nowhere. So they, it looks good in GDP, but it's not actually a sound model for economic growth. He would argue the the declining birth rate and aging population puts, uh, and um, perhaps maybe not, yeah, but basically, you know, like the, the aging population puts a, a, a big strain on the country in the next 50 years. And, and so the remarkable growth that we've seen in China in the 90s and 2000s, he feels is something of a mirage. What do you make of that argument? I think that's part of the old playbook. And so my book is called The New Playbook, precisely because I want to say that a lot of these arguments about China's economy, you know, bridges leading to nowhere, the smokestack industries, the copying, the, the forced technology transfers, the state subsidies, industrial policy, etc. Those were the defining feature of, of China's growth in the catch-up phase the first 20 years, which was enough to get China going and as remarkable as it was anyways. But that's no longer part of the new playbook. So we should be arguing about something else. First of all, the quick fixes and quick wins like calling on state banks to be flush with capital from uh, for, for SOE, state-owned enterprises, Team China to do all the heavy lifting is, is just, it's just a thing of the past. Today, it's the private sector that is firmly in the driver's seat. 80% of the jobs come from the private sector, 80% of the innovation big topic in China comes from the private sector and 70% of the industrial output comes from China. The whole manipulation of GDP was also a thing of the past. Local officials, because they want to meet their targets, were, you know, manipulating these figures, massaging these figures. But because today GDP is no longer the single most objective, and actually they get more tax transfers, fiscal transfers from the central government if they don't do as well, they have no more incentive to manipulate these numbers. And or by the they, way... do they have incentive to manipulate them down now? Or? Uh, potentially, but even... Uh, all I'm saying is that there are lots of micro um, data, very, very rich, that can infer about the macro data, which if there were um, problems with the manipulation, you can see all that. And so that's no longer really a big issue in China. Again, you know, firm level data, house level data, electricity data, all of that can tell you everything about the macro and also the micro. But the new playbook is something different, right? It's about the private sector. The private sector is going to the fore, coming to the fore. And as as we I, I described in my TED talk, there's a vibrant 
different innovation, you know, landscape all over China. The geogra- the sheer geographical distribution of unicorns in China, by the way, which is the second n- most numerous in the world, just below, slightly below the U.S., is all in second-tier cities like Chengdu, Wuhan, which we all know of, um, Suzhou, um, uh, not just in Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen, they're everywhere. And local governments, what I call the mayor economy, has, you know, I think 1.5 trillion RMB of funds, you know, all around China to support these local entrepreneurs, to help them, to enable them. I don't think that kind of marriage between local officials and entrepreneurs is something we know or we think of when we think about China as this kind of dinosaur, clunky, old, clumsy state dominating everything. That's not at all what's actually happening on the ground. The central government doesn't actually implement the real innovation and economic policies. The local chiefs do. And their incentive is to help on the whole. Again, of course, exceptions always exist. Help entrepreneurs succeed so they can succeed, so they can climb the political ladder. So forget about thinking- Can you give an example of one of those mayor entrepreneur? Absolutely. So um, Hefei is a city no one has heard of probably outside of 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 China 5 million people not large in um in in cities among cities in China it has built the glo- a global quantum avenue quantum companies in the world known as the quantum avenue in in Hefei where in um let's say in 2009 there was a small company uh BOE technology I might get the name wrong uh, of which makes LCD screens um they nurtured that that uh company they decided to not put the money into building a city metro station and staked this um this company that now uh makes about 25% or more of all Apple screens etc and has overtaken Samsung as the world's largest um, uh, company in exporting LCD screens. Back when it was nothing. Same thing, quantum companies where private enterprises deemed it never going to be commercially viable, they staked them. But again, it's not just about the money, right? It's about helping the entrepreneurs overcome a whole range of issues like how to build an industrial clutter around them, how to give them into a, a supply chain, attracting talent, giving them cheap land, helping them coordinate loans from banks. It's not just about staking them financially. It's about enabling entrepreneurs. So this small city of Hefei has the world, one of the world's top EV companies, NIO. That's the example I gave in TED. Uh, they took them from four to hundred billion dollars of um, uh, market cap, whatever that means, uh, if it means anything, uh, within a year because they helped them and uh, supported them. The quantum companies, uh, the AI companies. This is just one example of one city. Imagine dozens and more of them, these local mayors running around, um, you know, Suzhou has uh, autonomous hundreds, if not thousands, of autonomous related vehicle companies in Suzhou, in the small city of Suzhou. And that's, again, everywhere in China. So that's not about building bridges to nowhere. It's about supporting China's innovation, supporting the local entrepreneurs. And yes, there are um, deficiencies, like there will be waste. Local mayors might bet on the wrong companies. But now it's it's they're becoming smarter with each iteration. So now they're like venture capitalists. They work with other venture capitalists so that these private actors can help them pick out the most promising companies and they do their job and what they can offer. And there's a collaboration. They're they're understanding that their meddling doesn't help. So they're stepping back. They're putting a cap on how much financial equity they can take in these companies, making sure that there's no corruption. There's making sure that they don't overstep their role. So again, it's an evolving thing. They've learned from the past mistakes. And I just think that there's might be something to learn from that model um, if it can't be transposed. And I'm not suggesting it could, but it's not about the bridges because the new playbook is about innovation. But the difference with innovation is that you see the fruits of it, the investment over a long period of time. It's not going to be as immediate as building a bridge. You're not going to see in the GDP matter, uh, GDP numbers. But guess what? China's goal has changed. It's no longer just about GDP. It's about slower, but high quality growth if it can achieve it. Is there a brain drain problem in China in terms of the, the best and brightest of China being far more likely to leave China, go to America or to Europe than vice versa, right? Like usually, like no one is surprised that Mark Zuckerberg stayed in America, right? That's like what we all would expect an American bright young entrepreneur to do. But China, it's it's much, it's, it's far more common than it is here to see a Chinese national at some point in his or her young adulthood go abroad, right? And that's, that would seem if I were Chinese to be a problem and a disadvantage in the long term for my country. So how do you, do you view that as a problem? And 
If so, do you see any solutions to it? I wouldn't have said that it was a problem in the past, but it might become more of a problem today. And I'll explain why. So again, if you look at the data, some 80% of Chinese students who have studied abroad since 2010s have returned. 80%. Um, 80%. Mind us that almost close to half a million of Chinese students study abroad every year. And they come back home. And many of them have had experiences working at Facebook and Google, etc. They have the best job offers. And they, um, many of them have opted to return home. And the reason was simple in the past. China is a huge market. One great idea, if you're an entrepreneur, can make you a millionaire or a billionaire overnight. And many of them have. Some of them have um, had uh, experience at Facebook and Google, etc. The reason is... What we come back to, right? The Chinese market is huge and there are cultural issues. So they are much more, they have an advantage at the home market. Now, before I forget, let me also point out one striking statistic that recently four out of the five most downloaded apps in the U.S. today are Chinese. Shocking, right? Well, what are they? Shein, it's a clothing um Cheap, cheap kind of clothing. These are these, this is global, worldwide. Global, worldwide. Okay, okay. Um, Timu again um, uh, uh, is is a, the founder had uh, I think Google uh, experience and then went to found a company that went from zero to thirty billion dollars of valuation within three years. Um, Pinduoduo. Timu is the global kind of extension of that business model. Again, very, 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 very successful because China is using their business successful e-commerce business models and selling even to the U.S., which I find really quite striking given the heat of the geopolitics, right? What I'm saying is that they had a home advantage. Now, the most successful of them, but there will be very, very few of them that would actually become as successful in the U.S. or in the world. If you can imagine Chinese entrepreneurs having a hard time, just as American entrepreneurs have a hard time going to China, it's the same thing in the reverse direction. So I think there are still convincing arguments to be made that um, if you have a bright idea, China is where you can really make a lot of money and it would be much harder to do so elsewhere. But eventually that could happen. But I guess the reason why I think today it could be more of a problem is the regulatory crackdowns on technology companies in the last couple of years and the general instability or uncertainty of the macroeconomic environment. And if we look at the Chinese economy today, we're suffering from a severe loss of confidence. Confidence is so important in today's China's playbook, where capital markets matter, innovation matters, less important where industrialization was the rule of the day. Confidence is credibility of the government, commitment of the government is crucial. So I'm worried about that. But let's not also forget the main arguments, which is China's China to many Western companies is the ultimate fitness ground for their products. They say that just the sheer amount of domestic competition, the really fat feed, fast feedback from customers uh, back, the steep learning curve makes them want to be in China to be to be able to be on the on, on really on the best at the best of their game. Um, so I'm still not that worried about the brain drain. But what I'm worried about is that everybody's holding back. Entrepreneurs are holding back in China. Uh, investment is holding back. The Why US are they holding back? Because they want to see a credible and committed government that the economy is still the priority. And they're still not, they're not, they're not convinced. What do they worry is the priority? Well, they have looked at the crackdowns in education companies and technology companies, and now the mention of security um, many, many times over the economy. And then, of course, the heated geopolitical tensions. They're worried about common prosperity, this you know grand scheme agenda to bring more equitable growth. What does it mean for private entrepreneurs? Yes, their, their, their worries are totally legitimate, and I can see that the private sector is holding back. But I also want to caution the Western audience that don't read anything in China as permanent. Things do change. Often you, you bring out these very loud messages of, you know, common prosperity or Marxist-Leninist kind of uh, ideologies, but on the ground, there's something else. There's a vibrant place, you know, marketplace. There's dynamic entrepreneurialism. You need to separate the hype from the reality. And the Chinese government is also recalibrating and, you know, kind of readjusting their policies all the time. After the crackdowns on the technology company, these days, they're coming back to encourage them, to nurture them, to, you know, to, to give a better environment for the for, for, for these companies. So they're stepping back. It's often in China, three steps forward, two steps back and, you know, goes back and forth, the pendulum swing. Um, so not not great, but that also means that they can actually adjust policies if they fail. Um, so don't read anything as, 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 as permanent. So what about declining birth rates? We've seen, I mean, Japan is in some way the canary in the coal mine of the whole world because the whole world is basically below replacement 
birth rate except for like Pakistan and possibly India. I, I would have to check that. Um, but, you know, pretty much all of Europe is below birth rate. America's below replacement birth rate. Japan is way below and is now its economy is suffering and having to deal with those problems as a result. And China seems like it, it is really headed in that direction where the population is going to be aging associated with far more health care costs and, and which have to be borne by an ever smaller ever smaller group of young people, essentially. How, how do you view that issue in the long run? So there's um, so in my book, there's one big uh, chapter on the one child policy. I think people underestimate the profound impact of the one child policy on China's economy and society and its impact on the world. Um, The one child policy, just for people who are not so familiar, is the rule that at least all uh, people, Chinese people of the Han uh, ethnicity, the majority of the population, could only have only one child. And that was implemented, strictly enforced in the late 1970s. Uh, And it's it's ended for more than a decade. But I'm 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 the first generation to have been in the one child policy. Now, if you can imagine us, right, having no siblings, having grown up in that environment, and now under pressure to pay for extraordinarily high uh, real estate prices, um, having had our parents pay um, exorbitant, they made an exorbitant investment on our education because of competition. You know, what is our desire to have kids if even, you know, uh, urban households spend up to 30% of their income on educating one child? Um, So all of these things seem prohibitive, along with the fact that we've gotten used to small families without siblings. So I think these the social impact of the policy is one of the reasons explaining the fertility rate, but also the affordability issue. And but also most importantly, it's this reduction in expectations, diminish expectations of the future. Meaning if we look at today's young people, 25% of those with uh, with college degrees last year didn't have a job, which means that just even putting aside the aging issue, I'm not actually worried about the aging issue per se. The fact that you you don't have enough jobs for the most productive and educated generation, the young generation, because of the big mis- mismatch between skill and education, to me, is the most pressing problem in the Chinese economy today. Not that there's a 0.1% reduction in labor force growth over a period of time. I might be inventing this memory, but isn't there some Chinese children's story character that uh, young, unemployed Chinese people are comparing themselves to because it's this phenomenon of younger unemployment is becoming a big problem. Uh, I'm not sure you know about I'm that story, about? but there's a lying flat phenomenon. Yes, the lying I, flat I phenomenon. think that may be it. What, can you describe that? Lying flat is has become a buzzword in China in the last few years. I think it just means lie flat and be relaxed and don't do anything. It's a kind of um, it means maybe giving up. It means like I just don't care anymore. Um, remember, this is um, this is totally shocking to the parents' generation, where you had you know Foxconn workers opting for three nights, three shifts a night just so they can earn just a marginally more income. That was the generation that 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 helped fuel China's economic growth. Today's new generation, and again, you know, we don't want to think about them, all of them being like that, but there's a certain portion of the people that are, I think, lying flat, but more than just, uh, you know, more broader, broadly, broader than just giving up. They might just be more relaxed. They might care about life-work balance. They're less hungry, less ambitious than the previous generations. We usually think about the Chinese as being uber competitive and hard working and etc and that's that that's a generational shift so that comes along with this desire of I don't want to have a family I don't want to get married uh, which again is rooted in social problems this big gap in expectations and reality that the new generation have but I also don't want to depict it as a general phenomenon yes this is a concern it's a portion of the population. And by the way, I don't think it's a bad thing for the world that you have more relaxed group of Chinese people more interested in, you know, Buddhist uh, kind of uh, activities and uh, spending on lifestyle rather than working hard. Again, we want to see China, and that goes back to the general theme. There's always a cycle of renewal. You know, the really hardworking Foxconn workers don't exist in the new generation today, but they're in Vietnam and in, you know, other countries where labor is now cheaper, the workers want to work more. So this is all being passed on. When China took jobs away, they were often taking jobs from stuff that Europeans and Americans just didn't want to do anymore, right? And now it's happening to China too. 
there are lots of jobs that these Chinese, these blue collar worker jobs that Chinese new generation don't want to do. But without straying too far, just to, just the bottom line is the aging issue is a concern. But we have to remember that society and technology is always endogenous. If you have a more aging labor force like Japan, they also employ more labor-saving technologies like robots, etc. And in an age when we're talking about artificial intelligence displacing so many jobs, etc., we don't really know how that endogenous evolution of technology and demographics work. But what we do know today is that this group of young, highly educated people don't have jobs, uh, are lying flat, and don't want to have kids. That's the central problem. The government has to take care of It's also not a uniquely Chinese problem. It's, I mean, almost everything you just said about the younger generation has been said of the American younger generation, which is getting a college degree no longer guarantees that there's a job for you. Uh, Whereas in the past, it used to be synonymous with the path to the middle and upper middle class. The younger generation, you know, Gen Z is, as a reputation, has, has earned maybe unfairly, maybe fairly, a reputation for not working as hard and for being like difficult to employ. And and there are a million TikTok videos that are like very funny about bosses trying to wrangle their Gen Z employees. And so these are these are global problems. And that's where the American and the Chinese can see eye to eye in the new generation. Is that the new generation sucks. If anything can bring us together, it's that young that's people suck. <laughs> so I want to briefly talk about foreign policy I think the the forces that bring the U.S. and China together and, and, and make us friendlier, these are the forces you're arguing we should pay more attention to and we should nurture, uh, at least it seems to me. Unfortunately, it seems foreign policy is pitting us more and more against each other, more now than three or four years ago, uh, largely as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and, and though I don't believe China has sent any weapons to Ukraine, China has certainly become closer with, sorry, no, sorry, weapons to Russia. China has certainly become closer with Russia and with Putin in a wake and as a result of, uh, of, of Russia's, of the rest of the world shutting Russia out, essentially, san- sanctioning Russia. They've deepened economic ties, energy ties, and so forth. And that pits the U.S. and China on opposite sides of the biggest military conflict in the world. And it's often seen as a potential precursor or dress rehearsal for a a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or something like that, right? How do you view, I guess, both of these problems? You can take them one by one, Russia and Ukraine and U.S. and China's involvement with that. And then uh, the, the possibility of an altercation between China and Taiwan given that President Xi has said by 2050 that they'll, they'll be reunited one way or the other? Well, Coleman, since this is um, you know, a contrarian view for your audience, I, I do want to bring uh, a slightly different perspective. Let's say the Chinese perspective. Hopefully it will be helpful to understand uh, you know, the other side of the story, um, not my personal judgment, but for, for at least food for thought and open debate. I just want to say one thing first and foremost, um, which goes back to the century of humiliation that we talked about. Uh, the fact that China was a very weak military power for a long period of time. I don't think many of the people in your audience, perhaps I'm mistaken, uh, would remember that or would rec- or acknowledge that um, uh, Obama's pivot to Asia, something like concentrating two thirds of the naval forces in Asia, purportedly aimed at China and uh, was the biggest uh, buildup of military forces since the Second World War. That, again, from the Chinese perspective, when you have missiles in their vicinity pointed at China, troops and warships, etc., U.S. also poses a security threat to China. Now, I, I totally understand and think that, yes, these two countries should respect each other's national security considerations, absolutely, and push back on China where that's a consideration and vice versa. But that's just something to be aware of in the back of your mind that, you know, when we're often portraying China as being more militarily aggressive, understand that center of humiliation and the buildup for its own security purposes. And the fact that in 2015, uh, the U.S. with regional allies, including Australia, practice a blockade, practiced a blockade of cutting China from all oil and resources. That spooks China, right? And if we're thinking about real politique, for instance, um, and this will relate back to the Russia question, this is in the leadership's back of the mind. Um, so that's just a backdrop of, of some of the actions that I think deserve to be heard, um, at least. Now, again, giving just the Chinese perspective, it is torn on the issue with Russia. 
it has consistently in its foreign policy. To be policy, fair, though, sorry, to, just to the last point, the desire of the Chinese to have Taiwan back predates everything you've just talked about. Yes, but remember that And the therefore US it can't be caused by it. Maybe, maybe exacerbated, but not caused. But, but people also often forget the U.S. and China's founding relationship in the 1970s. One of the pillars was that the U.S. recognizes China as a sole sovereign government uh, in the, with Taiwan. That Again, no judgment here, but that was the pillar of resuming the international relations between U.S. and China. And the one China policy for whatever, you know, whatever it means to people was acknowledged by the U.S. So I just want to say that there are, there are some kinds of arguments that have been made by top foreign policy scholars in the U.S. about Russia's warning um, uh, uh, many, many years ago about NATO. In the same way, China is saying, look, that's the foundation of our relationship. And if that changes, China is going to act. So again, that that has been a historical a historical thing, just to keep in the back that the founding of our relationship is based on, partly based on that. And yet, though, again, doesn't China's desire to have Taiwan predate even the 70s? It predates that, right? It's more fundamental. It It is... It's a one China. It's a one China policy. It's China, you know. Coming, let's just focus on Taiwan. It goes back to like 1949, right? Go back. It goes back to whenever you know Taiwan was. So um, it's not. I want to acknowledge the there is and when the war in Ukraine broke out, there was this. We had this debate in American discourse between the philosophy of realism and the critics of realism. The the John Mearsheimer thesis that look, the world is ugly. Power is the fundamental principle in some way. And it, you can stand on principle of what's right and wrong. But at the end of the day, doing that may lead to a war where women and children die. And you have to take that into account. And um, and so there was and that there were parts of that argument that I think were much more compelling than other parts. I think many people took that way too far and it lapsed into apologism for Russia's uh, war, war of aggression. But there are aspects of that that absolutely ought to be considered. Like our our diplomats should not want to provoke unnecessarily powerful. And it's it's no in. in so I want to I want to I want to uh, balance those points fairly. Yeah, this is not directly necessarily related to Russia or Taiwan, but I, the, the point I was making about the backdrop is that China is a, is a rising nation with its aspirations of a rising nation that we have to acknowledge, um, whether it's right or wrong. But, you know, the U.S. had a Mon Monroe Doctrine, which was about ousting European powers in the Americas when it became a strong nation. So just having the America, you know, the Ameri American military force in China's backyard is not something that the Chinese are comfortable with. Again, that's nothing to do with Taiwan and Russia per se, but it's just about military buildup in the region. Coming back to the Taiwan issue. Look, you're absolutely right. I don't think anyone in their right minds want war. We should not be making that a more likely outcome, either the Chinese side or the American side. Interestingly enough, if you look at um, the surveys of uh, published by Taiwan universities of what do the Taiwanese people want, the majority say status quo, meaning peace, status quo. Not not we want independence, 5%, not saying they want to be unified with, uh, with uh, the Chinese, less than 5%, but the majority want status quo. Well, so what does status quo mean in their mind? Because they, the Taiwanese perspective, I, I thought was that they are the rightful government of all of China. Basically, it asked more, you know, to be determined later is basically to just put it, put these, keep it on ice, keep it on ice, keep it, you know, just keep it as it is and now. And we can agree to have disagree. That, have, that, have that ambiguity. <laughs> agree and to then disagree let's without military conflict. So, so all I'm saying is perhaps I think the provocations are really dangerous, right? Either coming from China or the U.S. and probably both. But maybe have we considered the idea that left to their own negotiations of the two parties across the strait, that a peaceful resolution might actually happen. Because China, I think this is something to remember, China wants peace. If anything, repeatedly been emphasized, and now you can look at the subtle messages of the premier recently giving a speech about, we do not tolerate, you know, war and violence uh, uh, in uh, in Asia. There's a subtle message to be said. The Chinese government's not going to openly say anything about Taiwan, right? But it wait, means but didn't, we Wait, want... hold on. But didn't, didn't President Xi say by 2050, China and Taiwan will be unified? 
it could be peaceful. Um, peaceful resolution is. I could look at the quote, but it it seemed that he said by any means necessary, you know, or or it, an equivalent. It says, yeah. you know, or maybe in a follow up clarification, yes, exactly. it was but, by hook but or by let's, crook. Let's just let's just put aside that statement of 2050, okay? But peaceful resolution is the way the Chinese government is it wants to go about, and I think people are are confused right now. They think that it's immediate military action. I, I don't I don't agree with that because peace is so important for China right now. China's economy is in a really poor state. America's economy is not doing that well either. They can't actually afford to have um, that kind of military confrontation. And the Ukraine-Russian war is also a lesson. It really is a lesson about, you know, first of all, China hasn't fought a war for decades, right? Um, uh, what do you trust among your close confidants and the, the modern military te- technologies and the importance of it? And by the way, have you also considered a possible, uh, another side of the story, which is to some hawkish Chinese, maybe the U.S. wants China to take an action on uh, Taiwan so they can rally around lots of nations to unilaterally sanction against China. Is the Chinese really going to fall for that? Is also a question we have to ask on the, you know, again, from their standpoint. So I'm skeptical that, I mean, someone is crazy enough to want that, but I'm skeptical that that's a significant element. Well, let's let's hope. For it. But again, you might not want to disignore, you know, ignore the Chinese perspective that are we going to allow a whole ally of nations unilaterally sanction China? What does it mean for its people and its economy? The sea, the people is the sea that makes and the party afloat. what would that mean afloat. for our economy? Trillions of dollars for the global economy. It would economy be horrible at for state, our economy too, I so. And hence, provocations are just not helpful. All I'm saying is that perhaps left to themselves, peace is actually feasible. Okay. My last question is, uh, I guess, uh, two questions. What, what are your feelings about uh, um, developments in Hong Kong? And, you know, there have been protests in the past few years and, you know, major worries that uh, China's government is uh, the CCP is encroaching on this. What was the status quo that Hong Kong had some degree of independence and so forth? Do you have views on this? Oh, Colin, just to say and apologize to your audience because I'm not an expert on, you know, political issues and foreign policy issues. No, I know. Issues. This is maybe out, out of your I, wheelhouse. I, I really hope to have done more research. You know, as an economist, I feel comfortable with the data and all that to, to make some comments. But anyway, we were talking freely. So I'm not going to say with any level of expertise that I know these issues. I do know that there are more complex and subtle issues behind all these topics that we have discussed. I'm extremely sad to have seen what has happened to Hong Kong. It was such a vibrant place, you know, rule of law, media, free media, etc., uh, was always, and, you know, being really the hub of Asia was always very, um, very important for China and for Hong Kong, for the rest of the world. I'm not as pessimistic, though, that Hong Kong can't rebuild. Again, China wants Hong Kong to su- succeed. It, it succeeds, and that would make China look good, and China has always had economic support with, with Hong Kong. So just putting that as a background, uh, that is that is kind of a, a goal. But just as an economist point of view, if you allow me, I think Hong Kong has a critical role to play going forward in international capital markets. What I mean is this. China is the second largest world economy, but its financial system is still very closed. It is in the process of being much more open to the global investors. For example, you know, only 5% of the equities, um, uh, Chinese equity is held by foreigners. 3% of the bonds or something in that range is held by foreigners. Imagine that going from 5% to 20% to 25%, as in the case of, let's say, the US, right? That's an inevitable development. And where, And because China has capital controls, which mean that capital can't flow in and out of China um, freely, it actually takes place through Hong Kong. And Hong Kong could be the great conduit uh, that allows foreigners to participate more in Chinese capital markets and vice versa. Think about the 1.3 billion Chinese people getting wealthier by the day. They want to diversify their assets abroad. How do they do it? They can also do it f- f- through Hong Kong. So Hong Kong's now um, nurtured as that hub um, by the Chinese, all kinds of free capital mobility, lots of swap programs, Stock Connect programs, etc. happen through Hong Kong. And if the world calms down a bit more in geopolitic, geopolitical considerations and people start to invest and try to diversify the assets around the world, I think Hong Kong could have a comeback. I'm very sure that, you know, the foreigners still like Hong Kong. We still believe that the the media openness, etc., the rule of law is still very sound. And so I'm cautiously optimistic. Okay, final question, or just prompt, really. What would you say, you know, in, in a concise paragraph to an American audience 
that feels anxious about Chinese growing power, that reads the news and feels we are in essentially a second Cold War, but with China this time being, and, and Russia being the junior partner really, whereas China was in the past. What would you say for Americans who are seeing a bipartisan consensus emerge that this is the attitude we should have towards China, this is a rivalry, this is a foe? What would you say in, in a paragraph to push back on that? I'd say compete rather than contain and make yourself stronger as a general rule for all countries, right? If we look at, again, focus on the economic and technology landscape, I like the notion of competitive collaboration, which I've written about. You know, Japan spurred the U.S. forward, uh, even with Japan's technological rise in the 1980s, and the U.S. pushed Japan to be better. And as a result, we all benefited. And if we look at the green transition, uh, the fact that Chinese renewable technologies, you know, China accounts for a third of renewable investment, that's really important for the green transition that we're all embarking on. The fact that 80% of the world is still developing countries country citizens, they see Chinese technology as affordable and reliable. American technologies, which are great and often go for the moon, might not actually apply to them, maybe not as useful. Chinese technologies will, probably because of lower cost, etc. So, and it's, if it's it's a positive force to spur the U.S. forward because you want to do better, because you have an active competitor in your rearview mirror, I don't think it's a bad thing. The same thing goes for Chinese. So that's in the economic competitive collaboration, compete rather than contain kind of, let's get out of the Cold War containment kind of um, analogy, because China is really not Russia. If anything, whether we like it or not, China is by and large a peaceful country, precisely because the century of humiliation, right? The devastations that people every day still remember, the costs of war, the humiliations of war. By and large, China is a peaceful uh, country. And last of all, because what I learned when I came to high school in the U.S., right from the first day of class is to have an an open discussion, to have an open mind, to see that there are differences in cultures and values, and that China is not a black and white box. It's it's many shades of gray. It's complex. The fact that, you know, we as free, independent, free-willed, independent, highly educated Chinese also have to defer to our parents in some cases, to our government. That can all coexist. So there's a lot of coexistence of seemingly irreconcilable things to the Western eye that can actually happen in the U.S., uh, can actually happen in China, and that things are changing. So hopefully, just by understanding each other's perspective, it will kind of suspend suspicions to just um, to, to the extent possible. All right, Ko Eugene, thanks so much for coming on my show. Great to talk to you with you. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.